0: Starting a new series today, but before I tell you what we're talking about, I want to get this idea of, or start this idea with you closing your eyes. I'm going to do a mental, a mental picture kind of experiment here for a second. I'm going to say a phrase, and I need you to, to picture it in your head, okay? So close your eyes. Nobody's going to attack you, I don't think. I don't know who's sitting you. Close your eyes. The phrase is, the good life. What do you think about? It? Where are you going? What are you doing right now? The good life. You're living the good life. This is you. You can open your eyes. I have a feeling, because obviously we can't poll everybody, but I have a feeling that it's gonna fall within one of these categories. Maybe you thought of something like this: Adventure. The the great wild yonder, you know, going out and and exploring the unknown. Something exciting, something that challenges you, something a little scary skydiving, something like that. If that's what you thought of, you need some therapy. I just want to let you know, by the way. I'm, just not, I'm not judging you, but I'm judging you. Now, if you're like me, you probably are thinking of something like this. When I think of the good life, I think of this. Can I get an amen? amen. Several of y'all, this is what you pictured. Someone's like, is there any mission work in Bora Bora? <laughs> I'm checking. Let me, let me, I'll get back to you. You are right. Like, why aren't we there right now? Just enjoying the ocean waves, just a little nap. Your kids aren't on this vacation. You are on, the, is the good life, right? Speaking of kids, for some of you, in reality, when you think of the good life, it looks like this. Surrounded by family, the people you love. All the moms just go, oh, my kids, right? And all the dads go like, eh, I'm all right. You know, they're grown, right? The good life is surrounded by family, people you love. <laughs> for some of us, me included, it's this one. a Little bit of solitude. If you're somewhere in the mountains where nobody can speak to me several days, I, boy, I'm living the good life, right? I'm starting an uh, introverted club where we will never meet. You never have to come. <laughs> it's awesome. It's the best club. No dues. I don't even reach out to you, but you're in the club. You're already in it if you're, if you're part of that. You'll never hear from me. For some of you, the good life is the idea of love, being love, being in love great night for you is watching a romantic comedy. I would rather be in a cabin in the woods. <laughs> or maybe, now this is actually getting closer to probably if you're younger, maybe it's the idea of fame, it's being known, having your name on the lips of others, people knowing about you, getting stopped in the street, being famous. Did you know that the average kid today, when you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, it is no longer a policeman or a fireman or a doctor, do you know what it is? It is a... YouTuber, something that didn't even exist 20 years ago. Isn't that fascinating? And probably, I'm going to say, most of us in some form or fashion actually thought of something along the lines of this. Maybe not this exact image, of course, but the idea of wealth, influence, influence. Being able to go and do like I want to do, like it kind of sums up everything. I just want to. I just want to have. I don't want nobody to know me. I want to be a wealthy introvert. I don't have a really big cabin in the woods, or you know. But I, I want to have. I want to have influence and power and accessibility. I want to just be able to do what I want to do. That is the good life. Well, I, I got you to play that experiment with me because I don't think any one of us—and this is not to put any shame on you—it's just natural. None of us, not one of us. Thought of any of these words. Sacrifice. That pop up in your mind first? How about suffering? I doubt that popped up. <laughs> How about oh, the good life is living generously? That come up in your mind? I doubt it. The good life is gratitude. The good life is all about self-control. Any any of y'all minds go there? Probably not. How about this? The good life is perseverance, sticking with it. The good life is living in forgiveness. Any of y'all thought that? Anybody? Uh, Nobody thought about forgiveness? How about this? The good life is purposeful work. No, no, I want a vacation. That's the good life. Well, it's funny how that is because what we're talking about in this series is a dive into some of the uh, main teachings of Jesus. That when he came, he had really this message that he taught. And so this series uh, kicks off several weeks where we will be looking at actually some of the above things and how, according to Jesus, uh, many of those things are not just the pathway to, because that's how we might would describe it. It's not just the pathway to, it actually includes, it exists in what Jesus would describe as the good life, and so we're definitely going to have to work on that term. And, and in this series, we're calling it "On Earth as It Is in Heaven." You probably recognize that phrase because it is found within one of the most famous, probably passages of Scripture uh, ever. What was ironic? I don't. I doubt anybody in here would, would have been a part of this experience in my life with me, but in high school, I played high school football. And uh, I mean, it wasn't a specifically religious school by any means. It's just like everything around us here. Everything's here just a little little sprinkled with Christianity on top because we're in the South and we're in Orangeburg, right? We're in South Carolina. We're in the Bible Belt. And so uh, before a football game, we would always get together and would just like speed run the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's always really funny, but everybody knew it. I don't even know half the people even went to church, but everybody knew the Lord's Prayer, right? And so you're probably finding yourself. So Where we find that, of course, is Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. I'm just going to read kind of the first half. It says, therefore, Jesus says, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, uh, your name be honored as holy or hallowed be thy name. That's the old King James. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done, dot, 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 on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I really want to point out something that really should jump out at us, it probably doesn't, but it should, is that when Jesus said this, he did not say any form or phrasing like this, your kingdom come, your will be done eventually on earth as in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done at the end of time as it is in heaven. He prays it in such a way that is very verbatimly right now, as in the, the present tense, your kingdom come now. Your will be done now. As it is happening in heaven, may it be done here on earth now. Matter of fact, I try to make personally a practice. I learned this years ago. Of, I often pray the Lord's Prayer just in my personal quiet time to help kind of get my mind focused and, and start in the right direction. And I will usually interject because I think it has significant personal meaning for me is may your, your will be done in my world. Like may it start with me May your will be done and your kingdom come in me, in my space, in my neck of the woods, and also not just in me, but through me. May I be an active agent for the coming and the changing of the kingdom of God in the world around me. Now, the reason I, I wanted to, I felt like we needed to do this series is an interesting story real fast. I was, I was reading a book. This was probably six or seven months ago, and just I have a study day during the week, and... I came across a section of topics, and this does not always happen, this will make me sound super spiritual, of which I am often not up to the par of, and I need to be, because we're all just human, but I was just reading a study, and it just hit me, it's like, the church has to do, we have to talk about this, we have to talk about these things, and it was talking about these ideas that are in our culture, that our culture agrees are true things, and we're gonna, I'm not going to spoil them. We're going to go through them over the next several weeks. But there are these ideas that our culture unabashedly believes. And every one of these things are a Christian thing. And so what jumped out at me is this idea is what happens to a culture where it buys into Christian truths but doesn't accept the Christ? Like what happens? What happens when we just kind of live in the husk? Of a, of a Christian way of thinking. Now, this series is not a few things. It is not, number one, me trying to argue that, that we are, as an American culture, a Christian nation. Now, we are much more of a Christian nation than an Islamic nation. I think I could definitely make that argument. I'm not trying to make that argument. Oh, we need to return to this being a Christian nation. We were never really that. We were built out of this idea of religious pluralism from the beginning. We were, you know, people were running. But the fact is those who were running, though, to this nation, guess what they were? They were Christians. They were the Puritans. They were, you know, people running from the Church of England and and the Catholic Church and all this stuff. Protestants mainly and all all of these kind of things were happening. So again, it's not an argument for that. But I am going to argue, though, that the West, meaning you are a Westerner, your thinking is Western, your thinking is Christian. Like the way that you process information is Christian. Now, I know I'm not arguing this. Uh, You're like, no, it's not. Like, of course it is because you're Christians. But what we need to understand is, though, is that our culture is trying to rob things from Christianity and saying, that's not Christian. That's just secular. It's like, no, it's not. That's not how that works at all. So here here are just kind of a few things uh, that that history actually proves, a true study of history proves, uh, that Christianity has actually done over the last, I would say, 2,000 years. Uh, the idea of human rights, completely Christian. Completely Christian. How do we know that? Well, number one, uh, other countries that aren't uh, Western Christian thinking don't believe in human rights. Um, you know, go to China, and they will make you disappear, and they don't care, and just the number, right? Uh, but even the idea of that, regardless of how wealthy you are or are not... The idea that you assume, every single one of us, when you see somebody on the road, now you may judge them because of their lifestyle, but not any of us are saying, I am more valuable as a person than them. And if you are, that is actually pretty wicked of you. But the reason I could even say that is because it's a Christian idea. Why? Well, because every single one of us is created in what? You know, the image of God. It's Christian leaders taking that idea really seriously. Slavery. Now, while some portions of the Christian church don't always have a super great rap with this, but it was Christian leaders who helped bring about the end of slavery in Western countries. Hospitals. Why? Did you know it's actually really common to look back in the history over the last 2,000 years and when things like plagues would come into the towns, black plague, whatever name your plague, and, and if you had any you know, ability to move, you would leave and people, records of people being left behind, whole villages and towns being deserted and just leaving the sick behind because it was bad enough where it would take out a whole family. You'd have whole generations just wiped out. I mean, we've actually experienced in some sense what that can kind of be like to a certain degree as a culture, just the fear that that brings in, right? We've been living in a season of fear for the last... Three or four years, it feels like. So can you imagine when you don't even understand why this is happening, you think it's some hocusy-pocusy thing, and guess who would not leave? Easy answer. The Christians. Not only would they not leave, they would often go into those areas, often at the expense of their own life. Well, why? Well, because we think about life and death much differently, don't we? Why do you think that most hospitals today that you go to have a Christian origin. Why do most of our educational institutions typically have a Christian origin? Well, because the sciences really were birthed in Christianity. And even though I know the popular culture is, like, oh no, the Catholic Church was, you know, doing all this, that, you know, dude, that's, that's just so, that's so much, so much distortion of the truth. And maybe that happened like one time under one pope. But the reality is most of the early scientists were Christian. Why? Well, because Christians believe that God designed and ordered the world. And if it's ordered, then we can figure it out. He put us here to be to be agents of of change and creation. Why do you think some of the greatest art in the history of man over the last two thousand years? What is it? It's Christian. The Sistine Chapel. You know all of these things in our culture, in our world, not just in America. They're all Christian. Why? Well, because for the last two thousand years there has been a revolution of thought based on a poor man from Nazareth named Jesus, and it is utterly changed the world. The reason that you value the poor, listen, I'm going get a little edgy here. Please do not, because I'm not making any political statements Not my purpose at all. But even some of the bigger movements today that have potentially gotten off track about the poor, about you know immigration, wherever you fall on that, even ideas like feminism and value of women, guess what? None of those things were important up until Christians. It has brought the value of Every person up. Why? Wow, well, because it's Jesus. Now, I say all that to say that before that, and if we're not careful, this is where we will return, is before the, the idea of Christianity, and we still see it in other parts of the world, the, the going mentality of the way of life. I've kind of identified three things. There might be more, but I think this is a good summary. Is number one. You've heard this before. It used to be that might makes right. For that, might makes right, meaning that whoever is the strongest, whoever has the power, gets to both set and break the rules. I think the, the best example of that that we've all heard of is like Alexander the Great. I just recently read a story where it said that he wept when he realized there were no more lands to conquer, meaning there were no more innocent people to kill and women to rape. How sad. It didn't matter, though. He was in the right. Why? Because right makes might makes right in that mentality. But we know it's wrong. It's devastatingly wrong. Why? Well, because of the teachings of Jesus. But without the teachings of Jesus, might absolutely makes right. And listen, that is happening currently in the world today. Might makes right has not left. It, it is not left at all. That is, that is the enemies. Best tool is to make you think that you are more important and more powerful or whoever you're with is more important more powerful than them and it will dehumanize and demean everyone else who's not with you. Where do you think slavery comes from? Might makes right. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That just leaves us with a bunch of blind, toothless people. But what does that really mean? Revenge is best served by my own hand. And yet... God's word says what? Revenge is mine, says the Lord. Jesus has this outrageous statement where he says, if they slap you on one cheek, offer him the other. That's that's crazy talk. Lastly, only the powerful hold value. That's kind of within the mix, right? But essentially that the masses are there to serve the elite few. And that is actually how the world was ordered through most Of church history. If you are a bookworm at all, side note here, at all, it is a long book. There's a book by a guy named Tom Holland, not the Spider Man one, but also a British one, which is ironic, but there's two Tom Hollands. Anyway, historian Tom Holland called Dominion, and he traces how Christianity has absolutely shifted, and every single thing that we really think about and value today is based on Christian thought. It is mind blowing. Oh, get this, he's an atheist, which is mind blowing, but he can't deny it because it's fact, it's history. And so you are living in a world in which Christianity isn't just something that we come and we pray and we do the songs. It's like, what point is it? Like? It absolutely makes a point. Everything you hold value is because of people who have given their lives. Case in point, here's another good example. I know I'm giving you a lot of stories here, but it's really important as I try to develop this idea. There's a man uh, a couple hundred years ago named William Tyndale. You probably have maybe heard about him uh, from the, something called the Tyndale Bible. Now, William Tyndale... He had a passion, and he felt like the Lord had led him to translate the Bible, which up to that point was either in the original languages, either being Greek or Hebrew. Anybody read those? Anybody? Any Greek? It's all, it's all Greek. It's all Greek to you too. Okay. And also, all Greek and Hebrew or Latin. I know some of y'all took Latin in school, but any of y'all read that on a regular basis? Like your like your Google news feeds coming up to you in Latin just so you feel smart. No, of course not. And so the only people who could read that were those that were trained. And so you would come to church and you would see a guy like me dressed up in a really fancy robe and I would have to tell you what the Bible says and what it meant. There would be no phone in your pocket. Well, William Tyndale said that that's not right. And he decided to translate the Bible into an ordinary language and got burned at the stake for his trouble. So to bring this home to you, the reason that everything you want to you sit here and has a phone on your Bible in your pocket is because some man several hundred years ago decided to give his life for you to have that. It's powerful, isn't it? Because when people take the word of God seriously, it can seriously change the world. But it doesn't always come without consequence. I'm not saying it's easy. It's certainly easier than it ever has been. But, but I think we need to respect those who have come before. And so my concern is this then. This really, really this is the big question that I have for this whole series. is Where do we go as a culture... When we forget the very lessons that our forebearers fought and died for. And I'm not talking about like American forebearers, I'm not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, uh, you know, that kind of history. I'm talking about your Christian forebearers. People like William Tyndale and others, all of the disciples, right? You know, all of the early Christians who who, as they were used to say, the church grows by the blood of the martyrs. Like it was the watering ground for, you know, the more Christians they killed, it seemed like more Christians converted to following Jesus. How crazy is that? But that's the truth. That's how we, we've gotten here. Now, you and I live in this world, and, 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 I, and I have a fear. That I'm, let, me, let, me, let me read first, and I'll explain to you my, my fear. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at today a teaching of Jesus based, this whole thing's based around the Sermon on the Mount. And you've probably heard of the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew, starts in Matthew 5, goes for several chapters. And it's just a collection of teachings that more than likely Jesus would go around and, and teach. And Matthew, one of his disciples, would copy it down and wrote it down. And so we have a record of that today. So I think this is just super exciting that we get to read an actual sermon from Jesus, the greatest teacher. Maybe sermon's a bad way to put it. Stories by Jesus, maybe. You know, he would it says he sat down. I'm not sitting down chilling out, so it's more story time with with Jesus, But Matthew 5, let's start reading in verse 1. Then, or when, he saw the crowds, he being Jesus, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, rightness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who who were persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I've often thought what would it be like to move to a place, let's say for an example like Egypt and live next to the great pyramids. I've always been fascinated. I love history. And I could imagine that when you first show up, I've never seen them in person that how Almost overwhelming, that would be. To, to see these, these things, these larger-than-life visual images of great nations before, seen and talked about over the last several thousand years, there's a possibility, listen, that even Jesus himself may have saw the pyramids. They escaped to Egypt. He grew up there for a time. I mean, to see these things that are just so larger than life, Right? But I could also imagine that after living there for some time, you just stop looking at the pyramids. It, I, you know, you just are used to it. And then maybe a friend or a family member comes to visit you, and you're taking them around the city, and, and they say, I want to go see the pyramids. And when they see it, their eyes were as big as yours were once. And for a brief moment, you kind of remember the awe. It's like, yeah, you're right. It's crazy. I see those things every day. I forget how amazing it is that they'll be here long after I'm gone. How wild is all this? I think the same thing happens with stuff like the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, much of the Bible, actually, because a lot of you are more than likely, possibly like me, and maybe you're not hearing some of these things for the first time. If you are, I hope hope that it hits you powerfully, because what Jesus says here is, to be frank, quite startling. It actually just, it doesn't fully make sense on its, on its own face face value because the things that he says are so counterintuitive to everything you and I have ever experienced in the morn. Like, blessed are those who mourn, so blessed are those whose hearts are broken. Blessed are those who are persecuted. I don't know if you've ever been stabbed in the back, for doing something that you were blamed for that you didn't do for being accused of lying and then say, oh, how blessed I am in this moment. How highly favored am I of my father in heaven? No, what do we say? I am forgotten. I have been abandoned because I am a victim of somebody else's cruelty. It doesn't make sense. And so I think what we're going to have to do today to maybe uh, refreshen our senses for a moment is to take a look at some of the meaning around it that I think we've improperly attached And And I'll help us start by this way. I think it's really interesting that I've, I've experienced several times now of getting to speak on a regular basis is that there's this idea in Christianity that when you ex- decide to surrender your life to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, Jesus is the, the comforter, the helper, I will send you. and That the Spirit of God comes and resides in you and me. That's what makes us a new creation. That's what can help transform our thinking and our minds. And so there's been several times over the last few years where because it's the same Spirit in me and in our church and, and other churches who are trying their best to be genuine and following after the Lord, where similar topics seem to pop up at the same time, and like just so you know, like I don't get on some platform and go you know look for things to preach. Like it's just not. Maybe some do. I don't. You know. I don't. I write all my own sermons and all that. It's not a not a brag. I'm just telling you this is what we do. This is how I was trained. This is what Pastor Artie's always done. And and so what's interesting is sometimes this happens pretty regularly. Is I'll be listening to another guy, you know, I always listening to other pastors and stuff, and, and he'll preach something that I know I'm preaching. And I go, oh, no, people will think I'm copying him. And usually, you know, it's like somebody, you know, really big and well-known maybe, something maybe even y'all would be listening to, and they like, oh, no, they're going to think I'm copying him. I'm not. It's the Spirit. I'm blaming it on the Holy Spirit. But then there's also been times where I'll preach something, and I'll go and listen. It's like, they're copying me. I knew it. I know it. I'm changing the culture. Actually, they don't know who I am at all, but that's fine. But I'm just saying, like, what's happening there, though, is is that the Spirit speaks to the churches. Like, the Spirit is active and moving. Like, this isn't just a thing that we're, like, making up. Like, it's like pixie dust. It's not how that happens. I really believe this stuff. It's crazy. It is. I believe it. And so then what happens is is I think that even beyond that, like, certain topics just start to saturate Christian culture. And so I've had this series planned. No kidding. For at least six months. Had it down. The staff can attest. We've been talking about this thing for six months. And then I start a podcast that I love called the Bible Project Podcast. You've probably heard of the Bible Project. If you haven't, you need to go watch their stuff. It's on YouTube. They have instructional videos. They have really good theology. But they also have a podcast that I enjoy listening to because it's a, it's a deep dive for a Bible nerd kind of guy like myself. And guess what? They're starting January of this year. They're doing the whole year based on the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought they're copying I can't believe it. I cannot believe that they're copying me. But actually, that's a really good benefit because they start jumping into some of the very things I've been working on. It's been really helpful. So if you want more of this, go look up the Bible Project podcast. I'm not copying them. They're copying me, just so you know. But what they talk about on here that was really helpful because their guy that's over it is a super smart um, Bible scholar. And he talks about this word that I'm going to butcher that is a Hebrew word called this. It's up on the screen. It's called Ashray. Ashray, almost like ashtray, but not ashtray. That's terrible. Ashray, which is an exclamatory description of, the, of a state of happiness or privilege observed by somebody else. An exclamatory description of the state of happiness or privilege as, this is the key, observed by somebody else. I think our best language around this idea would be the idea of lucky. So, like this You're a kid. And you go to your friend's house and they have a pool what do you say oh <gasps> you have a pool you're so you're so lucky ah oh, you're going on vacation next week and not coming to school ah oh, you're so lucky you got a huge promotion oh man you're so lucky i think lucky now i don't believe in luck but I think our nomenclature around that, which really is just stating an observed place of desire. You have a pool, you're lucky. I also would like to have a pool. Or whatever. I'm just using the pool. That just jumped in my mind. But you get the idea of lucky. So what what, what we tend to do when we look at the Beatitudes, and it reads like this: It says, It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so what most of the scholars that I'm kind of reading is that even though most tra- English translations write the word blessed, it's this word ashray. A- ashray. Ashray are the poor in spirit. Ashray are, are those who mourn. And, and several of the, the different ones that I studied, and it was really interesting, say what happens is with blessed, and it isn't that blessed is wrong, it's just that it's changed within our culture. And we have begun to translate blessed as in those who act like they're poor in spirit are blessed. Blessed by God, so in order to be blessed by God, you must then try to be poor in spirit, and then we've come up with different ways of what poor in spirit means. And then we say, oh, you know, blessed are those who humble, so be humble, and then God will. Well, bless you. And I'm not saying that's completely wrong. That's certainly a little bit of a part of it. That's not what Jesus was actually saying. When he used the word "ashray." they would have picked up on the connotation of like how we say lucky. Now, lucky doesn't quite do it, but we can actually even overread that here. Lucky are the poor in spirit. Lucky are those who mourn. And all of a sudden, we're starting to see that, wait a second, what is Jesus really trying to say? Some of you are like, what are you trying to say, pastor? I want you to hold on for a second. Because I'm not trying, listen to me. I'm not trying to change the meaning to fit a narrative. Sometimes we have a narrative and we make the meaning fit. I'm trying to get as close to Jesus' true meaning. Because something this big and important, if even missed by a few degrees, sometimes can really miss a lot. Details matter. And so, what the Bible Project, which I really appreciated what they did, is they, they termed it. because There's a lot of things, certainly, blessed isn't bad. That's the churchy word. Like, you don't go around like, you got a pool? You're so blessed. You're like, okay, we're not in church, you know? Flourishing, maybe. Man, you're flourishing. You're doing well. You know, this idea is this idea of already being in a state of, not trying to achieve a state of already being in a state of, they use the idea, the good life. And and I love that idea, and so what I want to do is I want to read the Beatitudes again, which I I believe, you can go back and do your own work if you want to. I think a little bit closer to what Jesus meant. So I want to read these, and let's just kind of talk about a few of them real briefly. Jesus preaches, the good life is for those who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is there. What does he mean by poor in spirit? He doesn't mean somebody that is purposely trying to make themselves spiritually destitute so they can better receive the mercy of Jesus, possibly, maybe, but he's speaking to a bunch of hill country people who have been stepped on. And written over by the religious elite and by the powers of Rome. And he says, you may feel like, he uses the idea of, of rhema, of breath. He says, you feel like you have no power in your breath. You are poor you are destitute in spirit, in breath, in your almost in your in your ability to exert life out of you. and we know something about that. if you've ever been struggling to just get up out of bed, you feel like you just have no power in your breath and Jesus says, the good life is where you are. Not it's just for you, you were in it And he says another startling thing. I'm going to get to why he says this in a minute. He says the good life, is for those who mourn. Now, this is the powerful moment here, okay? I hope it's powerful. Why does Jesus say so outrageous things? Because in Jesus' worldview, it is better for you to have sorrow, deep sorrow and mourning, and to draw close to him than to never have sorrow and to never need him. That is not where the good life is. The good life is not absence of sorrow. The good life is sorrow with Jesus in it because scripture promises time and time and time again that he is close to the brokenhearted. And see, this is why this is really important because I cannot count how many, you know, tiktok or youtube videos i have seen where young people specifically but a lot of people walk away from christian faith and they say this if god was real and loved me why would insert tragedy happen why would my mother die of cancer why would that kid get sick Why would I lose my dog? Why why would anything bad happen to me? And when Jesus came, his first message, the second sentence, says the good life is for those who mourn. Why? Because I will comfort them, and the good life is where I am. That's the message of Jesus. It always has been. And so it's not something that we're trying to achieve. It's more of the good life is when we realize that regardless of the state that we're in, that God is near and necessary. So then we can say, well, the good life is for the humble. Those who choose humility over pride. Not because we're trying to receive God's grace, but when you're humble, you are already receiving his blessings because you're living the good life with Jesus. The good life is for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That means rightness, right standing with God and those around you you're not living in constant tension, anger, and bitterness with either God or others. For they will be filled. The good life is for the merciful. Those who do not live an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But instead, those who show mercy like they have been shown mercy. That's the good life. The good life is full of forgiveness. For they will be shown mercy. The good life... Is for the pure of heart, those who seek holiness. Listen, we have a culture that is overvalued mercy in God's love. God is a God of love, but the angels around God are not singing, loving, loving, loving is the Lord. What are they singing instead? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He is a God of love, but he is a God of holiness first. That is who he is. That is his distinct character. He is set apart from us. Even his love is holy. He's not lovingly holy. His his love is holy love. And so those that want to have the good life, they will be pure in heart, not double-minded and divisive, for they will see God. The good life is for the peacemakers, not those who try to leverage might makes right, but instead those who use their might to bring about peace. And not, may I add, A sword at your throat type of peace. That's not how Christianity spreads. It is by allowing the sword to come to my throat, if necessary, for peace. Woo, Ah, this is hard stuff. And lastly, the good life is for those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So what I believe this to mean, to put it maybe back into some physical context, is that when our our guy, William Tyndale, was burning at the stake, and he he said something, I can't remember, I should have written that down, but one thing to note is he did not yell curses at his accusers and murderers, because they were murderers. They murdered an innocent man. But he would say, it was worth the cost, because I was living the good life, because I was in God's will for my life. And if it took me to experience that momentary pain for the joys that I now live in in heaven a hundred times over. That's hard to think about in our world because we are so separated from being uncomfortable. Now this is just the beginning of the sermon, of course. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at different aspects of what Jesus taught. just different. It might you know extend slightly past the Sermon on the Mount, but just other things that again... That our culture believes to be true. They know it's true, and I'm gonna go ahead and give you the answer why. It's true because Jesus came and is teaching God's moral law. And it is as real and as true as gravity and the laws of thermodynamics and of math and all of those other things that we did not invent. We didn't invent those things. <laughs> Christians typically did, but we didn't invent those things. I mean, we, we dis- Christians discovered them, but we didn't invent them. Just like we didn't invent morality, Jesus came and showed us the way. So what happens when you and I, as a culture, our culture, just kind of haphazardly just lives in this way that I just want to receive the blessings instead of choosing to live in the good life regardless of whatever season and circumstance Jesus puts me in because I know that he is there with me. I'm going to choose to acknowledge that I am in the good life and the good life may not include a vacation in Tahiti and it may not include the car that I want. It may not include the health that I want, but as long as Jesus is with me, it is the good life. That's the kind of stuff that changes the world. So I want to conclude with this, these, just these two things, these two ideas. See, The good life is found when I, when we, view our story through God's story. This is going to be a constant theme. This is something the Lord is constantly bringing to my spirit to remind us all about. That your story is not your story. Your story must be found in order to be fulfilled properly inside of God's story. That's the proper context. Number two, I can live the good life. When I choose to live like God's kingdom is coming to earth now and I can be a part, you can be a part of that. And I don't know what that means for you. It might mean jumping on an airplane and going to a country you've never been for a week. Maybe. Or maybe, look, there's some stories of people that I can't share because it's not my story, but of people whose lives are being shaken. Because everything they thought that that was right or good or they were supposed to be doing, they've, they've started dabbling their toe into the water of God's direction and purpose for their life, and it's scaring them. But listen, they are more full of life than I have seen them in years. Because when you choose to live your story, your story gets smaller and smaller and less significant and significant only to you. But when you allow your story to be placed in God's story, it expands, and it grows, and it's bigger than you, and it changes more than you, and it affects not just you, but generations. And so I I feel like what I'm inviting all of us into is to stop looking at life in the terms of like minutes and moments and hours and maybe even days, but instead in months and decades, months, years, and decades. Because we live moment by moment, I look back and I realize I haven't hardly changed in any of the moments. I'm just always concerned about the next moment. How am I any better? How am I more full of God's life than four or five years ago? How are you? More living the good life than you were four or five years ago. You made more money? Are you really that much happier? Are you? Are you really? Are you really? No. You got the car. You got the kids. You got the house. You got all the stuff. You're so full of stuff in our culture. But are you living the good life? But instead, when you think about your story in God's story, he helps you begin to think long-term. What can I do that when I close my eyes, I can say, man, I lived the good life. And it was a big life. Bigger than me. Because I was living it through the life of Jesus. That, that's the good life. We're not going to close with, with, a, with a song. You guys can stand with me. We're just going to close. I would like for this to be um, maybe a pondering Sunday. So I give you permission, parents? When you get in the car with your kids, tell them, to be quiet. Mommy and daddy's pondering. All afternoon, you can't talk to mommy and daddy. It's a, it's a quiet afternoon. We're pondering all afternoon. Pastor told us to. But, but for real, um, maybe let this weigh heavy on you because... I'm just going to be honest. And if, I, hope I, I hope I came across well. I hope it's not my fault that, you don't, that, you, that you're not receiving it this way. But if you are not a little bit troubled by listening to what Jesus taught, I just don't know if you heard me because it's troubling. But it's where the good life is. Let's pray. King Jesus, I thank you so much for your wisdom. I thank you that you sent the Spirit to reside in every single one of us. And how you do in some strange way that we don't know how it works. You do move in all of us. And how you are just guiding and directing your people, your family. So we pray that you will do that more so. That you will point us all into deep introspection, deep pondering, deep thought. Into the areas of which we are trying to pursue The good life by living our story by ourselves father we repent of that we repent of that small selfish thinking we pray that right now you begin to expand our mind and our hearts into a better way of living pursuing your good life for the rest of our lives in the name of jesus i pray amen hey have a good week i'll be blessed